Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Here. Uh, I'm really excited about tonight's discussion um, about clothing and gender. It's going to be at the intersection of uh, two important topics. The first is the holiday of Purim, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. It is uh, the day that uh, the Jews were saved from uh, a physical destruction uh, when they were in exile between the two temples. And uh, also at the intersection of trans rights and trans inclusivity. So I want to just define some of the terms that were on the same page. Uh, and this is going to be a text study and hopefully a discussion. Um, for people who want to shut down conversations around uh, trans inclusivity, this verse in Deuteronomy parallels the verse in Leviticus uh, that is often used to shut down conversations around uh, queer inclusivity. Gender identity and sexual orientation are different. We spoke about this a little bit earlier. Um, who a person uh, wants to sleep with is different than who a person is when they go to sleep, right? One is a function of identity and one is a function of, of orientation. So um, there's a meta question about where gender lies and uh, whether or not, what makes something gendered? And we're gonna discuss that and I'm curious to hear how folks here understand it. But we don't necessarily have access to the information of where gender lies in terms of a person's transition. Uh, each, each transition is personal and unique. For some, it's a haircut. For some, it's pronouns. For some, it's word wardrobe changes. Others, it's hormones or surgery. And uh, is there a place along that spectrum of transition that Jewish law can validate and affirm the new gender identity? Um, and at this stage, the answer is no, in that there's no industry standard. Also it's not super helpful to substitute a social construction for gender for just a, a Jewish law construction of gender, right? And simultaneously, there is an urgent need to be able to support the trans experience. So what we're gonna go through tonight is one of the ways uh, that rabbis can be allies to the trans community um, by showing kind of the math of what's at stake in terms of the competing interests within Jewish law to allow a person uh, of trans experience to be supported, to be, uh, affirmed and validated in religious uh, and Jewish settings. One other disclaimer, uh, or uh, kind of framing, and then I wanna just make sure we're all on the same page. This kind of work is really important within Orthodox Judaism and for the different um, movements of Judaism that look to text study as a way of dictating what is permissible and what is um, forbidden. That being said, I think this is important for all Jews to be aware of because uh, the most oppressed and closeted Jews that are queer are in Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox spaces. And so if we care about what's happening in Rwanda, even if we don't live there, we also need to care about what's happening in Borough Park and in Muncie and in Crown Heights. 
So this is important also. Um, the work that I do is very broad in the trans community in both interfaith and interdenominational spaces. So this work is also really important in, in evangelical and in kind of uh, Christian fundamentalist spaces because they'll call and say, how can you be supportive? Isn't there a biblical prohibition of wearing uh, misgendered clothing, right? Uh, and in fact, this verse is what was used by the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, the largest group of Orthodox rabbis uh, in America, uh, a group that I used to belong to before I was thrown out for this work, uh, that this was the verse that they used to defend not doing conversions for folks of trans experience. Because they said, as soon as we convert the person, they're going to be transgressing every single second this biblical prohibition of wearing uh, misgendered clothing. So what we're going to, to do tonight uh, together is take a look at this verse, see how it's uh, seen in the Code of Jewish Law at the intersection of this upcoming festival of Purim, take a big step back to explore the role of clothing in the universe from the very first time clothing was ever used, uh, its role within kind of the mystical tradition. We're then going to plug it back in uh, to have some, uh, a, a new perspective on the role of clothing either of supporting a person's identity or concealing it. Um, and then hopefully we'll have a new perspective uh, both on Purim and also um, on, um, on clothing as it helps us in relationship uh, to letting the world know who we are. Any questions so far? Anything to clarify? Are, is everyone excited? I know it's late in the day, but we, everyone needs to get stoked. Yeah. Yeah, um, I appreciate you speaking. I mean, I'm here because it fascinated me that uh, I'm calling you an ultra-Orthodox rabbi. I don't know if you call yourself a different type of orthodox. You're, you're obviously Orthodox, and I grew up in the Orthodox world. No, I grew up in the modern Orthodox world, and my family would never have tolerated this. And, and what I learned, I went to yeshiva, and what I learned is that it, it looks like it's, you know, it's not correct. So um, are you accepted? I, oh, you mentioned that there are a lot of ultra-Orthodox in Borough Park and Crown Heights and wherever who are queer and how are they excommunicated from the community? Are they hidden? How do you know? Sure. How do you know that there are a lot? Yeah. I know we met one a couple of months ago. Um, somebody, I forgot her name, but she was here from. Um, oh, Abby Stein. Abby Stein. Yeah, sure. And she, it was fascinating. Yeah. Listening to her. Yeah. You know, she was a. Man, she was assigned male. Yeah, she was a rabbi. Yeah. She's now a woman. Sure. And that just fascinated me, and she explained how she was totally excommunicated. Mm hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, so um, she definitely has a story to tell, and she has a book now, um, and she and I have done a lot of work together. Um, I know they exist because I've met them, and I've seen them, and unfortunately, probably the people who uh, were your rabbis uh, and were talking about this in yeshiva probably never met a trans person in their life. And it's so easy to hate people and things that we've never met or experienced, and it's been my experience that uh, more than any sort of verse, uh, the bigger issue is homophobia and transphobia. Right, uh, and just to give a couple of examples, um, you know, what is the verse about homosexuality? 
have anything to do with asking queer people to marry straight, right? Um, or sending somebody, you know, th th we're not yet in a place with an orthodoxy where a person can say, listen, please stop trying to set me up with women. I'm not attracted to them. Like, even just acknowledging the reality of being gay is something that is not yet acceptable. It's an intolerable deviancy within certainly the right of uh, center. But what's shifting now is that people are tolerating it, right? Because I think after World War II, there was a fear that all was going to get lost. Well, now we have more people learning in yeshivas than in the last 2,000 years. Um, and because of the internet and because of uh, ways in which people are communicating and the large number of, of, of children that are people having, um, now, for the most part, people do know somebody, right, that's related to them. And the question then becomes, like, would we rather not have anything to do with this person because they're gay or, or trans? Um, or should we recognize that we don't have to change anything in the, in the Torah or in tradition uh, just to be able to be kind to somebody, right, and to allow them to stay? So that is shifting. There are huge underground communities um, within the Orthodox and the, we can use the term ultra-Orthodox, um, community um, where people are able to be with each other. Um, it's actually really sad because especially uh, in those communities where people get married very young and they're set up. Um, a horrible story last week, a, a guy calls me up. He's gotta be, I don't know, 19 years old. Uh, he's totally in tears and he's crushed. He's gay um, and the guy who was his boyfriend up until now was also gay, um, but he cracked under the pressure that his parents set him up to marry this girl. Uh, and so he's going through with it. Right? And he's not going to be faithful. Uh, and he, I, they sent me a picture of, of the chassan and the kala. Uh, these are teenagers, right? And um, uh, nobody would want somebody that they care about to be married to somebody who couldn't find them attractive. Nobody wins in that. And when this girl finds out, at some point she'll catch her husband, uh, that not only did he know that he was gay before he was married, but the person who officiated the marriage knew that he was gay. So why would she want to be part of something that didn't see her as a human being like worthy of being in an honest relationship? So that has nothing to do with taking a look at the verse, but it's a consequence of this homophobia, right? That if we can say there are gay people and you can't pray it away, so then the question becomes, now what, right? Just out of curiosity, do his parents know that he's gay? His rabbi knows, his parents do not know. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, it's every day they're different stories, uh, and they're all sad, and they're all self-inflicted by community. It doesn't have to be this way. And if we think about the tradition being holy, it's holy to the extent that it lets us know the divine will. But it, nobody can defend this as this is what God wants, because it's not sustainable, it's not fair, um, and it's not necessary. So, um, and we need to show the math that within our tradition, um, we can support being inclusive from within the tradition. Not just because these arguments make sense, but, um, but because if it makes sense, it's also in the Torah. Good? Fantastic. Volunteers, uh, one person perhaps to read this first source in whichever language, go for it. Um, in whichever language. Uh, A woman must not. Beautiful. Would you read the translation as well? A woman must not put on a man's apparel, nor shall a man wear women's clothing, for whomever does these things is abhorrent to the Lord your God. Great. 
So not a lot of wiggle room there, right? Um, any interesting observations? Uh, anything that's, that, that's striking or, or interesting about the structural asymmetry um, or anything that, that strikes you as interesting in the verse? And if not, that's also okay. We're going to do a really close reading of, of the next piece. Um, but it, I, I just want to pause and see. Yeah, please. Um, it starts with a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, it's saying a woman uh, must not wear a man's uh, apparel, and it doesn't start with uh, a man, and I think, I think that's interesting. It is interesting. It's also interesting that there are different verbs, yeah. right? It doesn't yeah. say a woman shouldn't wear. Yeah. It says there shouldn't be some sort of vessel of masculinity on a woman, but right, there's, right, that, uh, that the verb of, of Yilbash, right, a woman can't put on man's clothing and a man can't wear women's clothing. It's different in the Hebrew as well. It's noteworthy, right, that they're different verbs, right? Um, the word here, to'eva, to'evas, translated here as an abhorrent, it's often translated as an abomination, right? It's the exact same word that's used in Leviticus. Um, we're, I'm going to offer a new interpretation or a new translation, um, but just to kind of... Uh, start you thinking about it, what's abhorrent to the Lord, which is, I know that's not how we talk about God, um, but, you know, I'm staying in a hotel, um, and let's say that, that I'm cold, and the only thing to wear is, you know, a, a woman's sweater, right? Well, let's say it's not, I'm not going to die, it's just, I'm, I'm just uncomfortable. Or let's say it's raining, and the only thing that's available is a woman's uh, raincoat, right? So I'll get wet, right? The stakes are low, but is that abhorrent? I'm in a room by myself, and I want to wear women's socks because they're warm and fuzzy, right? I, I don't know, right? Like, is that abhorrent? Like, is God like, what are you doing? How can you wear these socks? Our verse doesn't qualify it, right? Our verse makes it sound like there's this directive. You do this, like, it's causative, right? Whoever does this, it's a toeva, it's an abomination, right? It needs an explanation, right? There's certain mitzvos, there's certain commandments where you can say, listen, this doesn't make any sense. And that's the point. The point is that God is asking us to do something that challenges uh, reason. But those are spoken about within our tradition as the things that we're supposed to have faith in. This is in the category of a rational mitzvah, right? So just, just to kind of flag it, we're going to need to understand it in a way that makes sense. Because if it doesn't make sense, it means you're not understanding it. Okay. But I still argue it's pikoch nefesh because you're going to get cold <laughs> and eventually that will make you sick. And if you're sick, you might. But I will leave that. <laughs> but change it. Like, right. what, if, what if you were traveling with your wife and you forgot to pack any socks? Yeah. But she packed socks and he doesn't want to wear his shoes without socks. That's right. It's just a function of, yeah, that's right. And we could come up with examples that, you know, I wouldn't get a cold. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Fantastic. Right? So, I mean, the point's a good point in that, like, uh, it needs an exclamation, it needs an explanation um, why, uh, why this is what it is. Okay, we're now going to do a close, uh, a close reading of this Code of Jewish Law. So this was written about 500 years ago in Eastern Europe. It's the most uh, definitive and uh, comprehensive and authoritative uh, work of Jewish law. And this is at the end of the section, it's, there are four sections, four different books, this is at the very end uh, of the section on uh, the laws of daily living, making blessings and praying and all of those types of things, and it goes through the festivals. So this is the laws of Purim, um, and it reads a little bit like it was cut and pasted from all of like, the scraps of what was left over, 
right? And that's not really how the rest of the Code of Jewish Law reads. And so, again, we're going to be really sensitive to why uh, it says what it says. And so, is there a volunteer to read this uh, in English for us? Please. It is permissible to marry on Purim. That which there is a custom to wear masks on Purim, and men to wear women's clothing, and women to wear men's clothing, is not prohibited, because the only intention is for happiness. And so to wear, so to, to wear. And so too to wear, oh, probably, oh. there should probably be a comma. <laughs> okay, and so too, to wear garments that contain rabbinically forbidden mixtures. There are those who say that this, that it is forbidden. However, the custom is like the first position. Beautiful, and thank you. Anything strike you here as odd or strange? This doesn't seem strange at all to me because the way I understand Purim, you're supposed to do abnormal things. You're supposed to get drunk for normal. You're not, Good. You're not allowed yeah. to get drunk. You're Absolutely. So can we order like cheeseburgers on Purim? No. <laughs> That is for sure true. And we don't do things that we're not allowed to do. We do things that we don't do. Like we, we deviate from the norm. And the whole idea is to have some sort of turnabout and inversion. Um, and so the fact that like the, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible here, says that it's prohibited, and here it says that it's permissible, that's really noteworthy. And I think what's even more noteworthy and even a little, little comical is the rationale that's given. Why is it permissible? Because it gives you happiness. Now, I just want to tell you, if you're sinning and it doesn't make you feel good, you're not sinning properly, right? That's the reason why people sin, because, like, there's pleasure involved. If, it, if it's painful, why would you sin? It doesn't feel good. So the idea that the reason why it's okay is it's because, it's, because, it, because it brings you happiness, it would be a very small code of Jewish law if the things which were uh, really prohibited were things that didn't bring you pleasure. Yeah? Okay, it just says footnote to the other thing. One day a year, we're going to let you. Good. So one of the things that's interesting is right. It, it seems to acknowledge that on Purim it's okay, but on the other days it's not. Right. But right. it seems to be strange that of the things that the rest of the year you're not allowed to do or we don't do, why on this day should it be permissible? Yeah. And I agree that this is not a proof, right, that it's permissible on all days. Right? But he does say that there are those who argue and say that it's forbidden. Right? There are a few things here that are interesting in terms of the language. The first is that there's a custom. Right? Like people are actually doing this. There is a custom to wear masks on Purim and for people to wear misgendered clothing. And at the very end, he says, look, there are those who say that it's forbidden, which when we think about customs, we don't normally say, is this custom permissible or forbidden? We say, is there a custom or isn't there a custom? Because we assume if there's a custom, of course people are doing things which are permissible. Right? There wouldn't be a custom. Society wouldn't have allowed something that's, right? So even though it starts off with, hey, there's a custom, there are those who say that it's forbidden. However, the custom is like the first position, which is that there's a custom. So it's, it's a very kind of slight pivot in terms of the language, and I think it, it is interesting. Anything else here that strikes you that doesn't belong, perhaps? Well, there's a disconnect between the first sentence. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the, the dot, dot, dot there is just, uh, you can also like redeem the firstborn. Uh, that's what I cut out because it just seems, so, but, but you're right in that what is, what is getting married have anything to do with Purim? Beautiful. So it's a great observation. I think the simple, 
Does anyone know within our national biblical history a time where somebody uh, dressed up as somebody who they weren't around the marriage? Yeah. Um, um, when Jacob and Jacob married the wrong sister. Right, so like, so we have like on some level, like we have. Uh, oh, thank you so much, thank you very much. So on some level, we have like reasons to be worried, but also as you point out, it's a day of drinking and partying, right? So it could be like the code of Jerusalem saying like, hey, today's not a day to sign anything, right? Today's not a day to do things that might have long-term consequences, right? So on a simple level, we could understand like, hey, you're allowed to get married on Purim, but maybe not be, might not be a good idea. Uh, because people are going to be dressing up as others. But I think there's going to be a deeper reason here. Um, are we allowed to get married? Has, that ever, any, has, ever, has anyone here ever been to a wedding on like Sukkot or on Passover? Do we normally get married on, on the festivals? No. No, we don't. And does anyone know why? The Talmud talks about it, but what's the rationale for why you wouldn't want to get married? On, uh, that's exactly right, right? A person, hopefully on the day they get married, like that act should absorb, right, and subsume all, and, and, and monopolize all of the happiness of, of the day, in which case you can't focus on the, the happiness of Purim, uh, of the day of the, of the mitzvah. So what's interesting is that here, even though there's a mitzvah to be happy, and, see, and it seems like that mitzvah to be happy is enough to allow you to wear misgender clothing, the, uh, the obligation of happiness is so small that we assume that, that getting married on that day will still leave enough happiness left over. Right? You know, somebody you thought was going to write a big check, wrote a smaller check, right? It wasn't like as much happiness as a person could have had, right? Maybe somebody got stuck in traffic and was late. But like, whatever's left over is still enough, and it's going to be important for this conversation to recognize that the bar here of happiness is actually really low. Because if you can get married on Purim, we're assuming that's going to take up most of the happiness that a person has available. And then still, you can still be happy for Purim. So that, that level of happiness is actually a small piece. Okay, so far so good? Everybody's doing great. Another volunteer here uh, to read Genesis 3.11. This is the day in which clothing was created. Uh, Any new readers? Would you like to read for us, please? Then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree from which I had forbidden you to eat? So this is interesting, right? I'm sure we're all familiar with the story. You know, if we don't revisit it... uh, as we get older, we're often left with the same narrative that we had when we were five or six. Um, so it seems like, um, from God's perspective, had we not sinned, we never, needed, we never would have needed clothing. And it's, I think, interesting to think about the shame that society often puts on bodies about being, bless you, perhaps in the ideal, not being about the body itself, but rather the, the, the remembrance that the reason why we wear clothes is because we, our ancestors, you know, didn't listen to God. God said no, and we didn't listen. As a consequence, as a, as a punishment, we're now wearing clothing. So I, I think a lot about what does that mean in terms of the role of clothing, that now we have to be reminded of that original sin. It's relevant for the Perm story, in a couple of ways, but to frame this in a way that might make a little bit more sense, the the Talmud imagines the oral law, and I don't mean imagines like in make-believe, but the the, the Talmud sees the oral law coming before the written. So the written law is the five books uh, in the Torah scroll that's in the Ark, and the oral is all of the Midrashim and the Mishnah and the Talmud and everything that came after. 
So Moses was teaching Torah to people in the desert after Mount Sinai for 40 years before he wrote the scroll on his deathbed. So the scroll became the written law, but for 40 years before, he's teaching the oral law. And so the Talmud imagines that all of the Torah for the future was also given over on Mount Sinai and included into that scroll in ways which were not necessarily revealed until later, and including the story of Purim. So Purim has in it good people and bad people. It also has a lot to say about clothing and not clothing. So for those who don't know, the good person, uh, the good people are Mordechai and Esther. The bad people are uh, Haman, is for sure the bad person. The Talmud wants to know, uh, is Ahasuerus just a fool or is he really evil? It's like not clear. And for some people we can relate to today, whichever side, there are people who, whichever side I think we can name people who are like, we're not sure if the things that they do which are bad are intentional or not, and it's just part of life. Um, but does anyone know, what are some things that we have in the Purim story around clothes or the absence of clothes? Is anyone familiar with it? Does anyone remember somebody who doesn't want to wear clothes? Sorry, who's told not to wear clothes and she, and she, uh, she resists? The introduction to the story is this big party. And there's this woman, her also, it's not clear where she falls in all of this, but her name is Vashti. And Vashti is maybe a feminist, maybe not. Um, but basically, her husband wants her to come out wearing, uh, not wearing clothing. She says, no, I come from this line of, of real um, uh, monarchy, and you don't. He married in. Anyways, he's drunk. Everyone's upset. And so uh, he kills her. And that's how the story starts, at this party. And then we have these other stories within it where Haman, who really just wants power, um, is asked by the king, Ahasuerus, what should uh, somebody who wants, uh, that the king wants to honor, like what would be a good honor? And so he says, well, maybe it would be nice if you would like take out the royal garment and allow somebody to dress up in these clothes. And in the end, that happens to, to Haman, and, sorry, to Mordechai. And we have uh, other stories in terms of uh, this good guy being a descendant of Benjamin, who's Jacob's son. When Yosef is finally reunited with his brothers, he gives his, this brother five sets of clothing as opposed to just one to the other brothers as a way of kind of foreshadowing this event. So no pun intended, but there are some threads in the story around clothing uh, that bring it back. So the Talmud here wants to know, where is there an illusion to Haman, this evil guy, the villain, in the Torah. So I'll read this because it's, it's a play on words and it's hard. So on the top of the next page, Haman minatayr From where in the Torah do we have a reference, an allusion, to this evil villain of Haman? And it actually quotes our verse about the tree and being naked. It says, Hamin ha'etz, from the tree, and Hamin is actually the word Haman. Right? So it's a play on words. So Haman essentially... Haman uh, of the tree, and the story actually concludes with Haman uh, being, um, I always, I know we don't past tense the word hung, uh, is, is not, he's not hanged, he's hung on the tree. There are things that I don't do well with in Hebrew grammar, within grammar, but anyways, he meets his demise hanging from a rope on a tree, right? Um, and so there's some interesting uh, connections there, but what's fascinating is that when we think about uh, the role of clothing, and the Purim story, they're connected by the Talmud. 
And the mystics explained that there was actually a consequence of the original sin that on some level got rectified by the giving of the Torah by Mount Sinai and then again got broken with the sin of the golden calf and then again got on some level uh, restored in the story of Purim. When God gave the Torah to the Jewish people by Mount Sinai, um, God was obviously very revealed. Earlier today, we described it as God's coming out speech. And um, there was also an aspect of religious coercion. God held the mountain over their heads. In the Perm story, God is completely hidden. They're in exile. There's, the temple's been destroyed. God's name is not at all found in the book of Esther. Esther's name means hidden. Um, we wear masks. We eat those humantashen, which you have to be careful because the insides are hidden. And we don't know. There you go. That's a humantashen. Those are very open, open-faced, right? Stay away from the, I would say, from the purple ones because maybe they're prunes, maybe they're poppy seeds. They could be all sorts of things. You just don't know. The red ones, for the most part, are safe because uh, how, how bad could it be? It's either raspberry or strawberry, right? Cherry. Cherry's the best. Personal preferences, right? But the point is uh, that there was a fundamental shift with the original sin, and the way in which that is manifested is that God became hidden, right? God uh, sees intimacy as an invitation. God wanted to be close with us. That's why God created us, right? The emptiness and void at the beginning of the Genesis narrative, our rabbis tell us, uh, was God's loneliness. It's not good for us to be alone because we're creating the image of God. It's not good for God to be alone. Um, our need to be seen for who we are is just, uh, just, it's just a reflection of, of God's need. Um, and so God creates us, and God's really excited to be in this intimate space in the garden. And God wants the relationship to be real. And so God says, listen, here, this is what's important to me. Um, I don't want you, right, to touch the tree, eat from the tree. And of course, God said, no, we didn't listen. We've struggled with consent from the very beginning. Um, and as a result, God distanced God's self from us, right? We were thrown out of the garden that first Sabbath was meant to be an eternal one. There wasn't supposed to be death. Uh, this world is super broken, but it's because we broke it, right? The world that God created was literally the Garden of Eden. And the way in which the mystics understand this is that God being represented as the one, the Aleph, the, the source of it all, the one thing that was never created, that that actually was removed. And there are consequences. So here also, uh, if uh, we'll read it in the Hebrew, in the English, but basically what happens is that these words uh, start with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and they're removed. So with the sin of Adam, three Alephs were lost. It's the Aleph, right, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, from the word Adam, which was his name that means person. Aleph from the word MS, which means truth, and from God's name, Adonai. What remains then, and this is what happens if you take the letter Aleph from these three words, you're left with the word Dam from Adam, which means blood, Mace, which means death, from the word MS, and Din, when you take away uh, the letter Aleph from God's name. And so, as a result, and the consequence of God being hidden is all of these bad and negative, destructive things. And an additional one, right, the mystics point out, was also the Aleph uh, of the word Or. The word Or with an Aleph means light. And that Aleph was lost and was replaced with an Ayin, which means skin. And so before uh, the original sin, we didn't even have the same type of body. I don't know if anyone remembers the, the movie Cocoon. So you remember what that looked like? Something like that, right? Some sort of glowing expansiveness of a, of a light. 
And as a result of the sin and God saying, listen, actually, it can't be expansive. It needs to be com- uh, contained. The Medrash tells us that, that, that even the angels had a hard time distinguishing between Adam and God because Adam wasn't just like a guy. Adam was this expansive light that shone from one side of, of the world to the other. And so there's a way in which the skin or with an iron became the clothing for the, for the soul. And as a result, clothing now are a redundancy in the system. We're now wearing clothing on top of the clothing. Yeah? Because the body is now the clothing for the soul. In a couple of uh, short passages here, just to, to explain how the word Aleph, the letter Aleph speaks to God, um, this is from Proverbs. It says, A shifty person stirs up strife, and a quarrelous one separates their friend. And Rashi, the medieval commentator, um, from, from Worms um, about 900 years ago says that it's through this dishonesty that God is separated from us and that the Aleph, right, is the Aluf, is, is, is the God part. And one of the things that we know about God is that God is perfect and God is, uh, is good and God is filled with truth. And so one of the things that God cannot handle is arrogance uh, and also dishonesty. It's not coincidental the additional parallel that God has in the garden with Adam and the tree and also Haman uh, in the story. That the, 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 the book of Esther tells us that every single person bowed down to Haman except for Mordechai. And because even though he had the entire world minus one, the fact that there was one that he couldn't control, he couldn't handle it. And that's the exact same story in the garden. There was actually a positive commandment to eat from all of the trees. But because there was one tree that he couldn't have, he couldn't handle it, right? And it's, it's just not dissimilar to uh, anyone who pursues, you know, physicality as a goal. The Talmud tells us, you know, uh, a person only dies with half of what they want. Because a person has 100, they want 200. You have 200, you want 400, right? Like, it's just, it's never enough, right? So imagine you can eat from every single tree except for one. I don't like fruit that much. It wouldn't bother me, right? But... <laughs> Certainly not in humantashen. But, um, but it, there is something there that when God says, look, it's not good for you. And we're like, no, but we know better. Right? God's like, okay, I can't. We can't actually be. It, it's exactly what happened when God said in the first of the Ten Commandments, right, I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of Egypt. Right? Um, the one thing that God wanted us to know about God was that there's just one God. Right? Like, that's like the most pronounced ident- part of God's identity, that I am the infinite source of the universe. And then just 40 days later, we're, we're serving this golden calf. And God's like, I don't understand. I, like, I told you that there's just one of me. I, like, I don't understand. Like, don't you believe me? Like, why is this hard for you? I don't understand. And again, God's like, I, we can't be in a relationship. I refuse to be in a relationship if you can't see me as who I am. And so God got hidden. The corrective piece came during Purim when God is hidden and still we're able to find God. So... This month of Adar, in which Purim falls, is actually a time in our calendar of great joy. And it speaks to a reunification of God in relationship. Um, any volunteers uh, to read this one? Uh, from the bottom of the page, the Degel Machne Ephraim. Please. And this is what is meant by when Adar enters, we increase in joy because the word Adar joins the one of the universe with Adar. Yeah. So, right, if we think of so the word Adar is actually the letter Aleph and the word Dar, which means to live, to dwell, to cohabit. 
So that Aleph left, God separated God's self from us because of the dishonesty. And here, when we develop that sensitivity to see God and to accept God with love, which is what the Talmud says, that when the verse in Esther says, Kimu v'kibu, that we accepted upon ourselves that which we accepted by the giving of the Torah, but without the religious coercion, without the fear, but out of love. So then God's like, oh, you get it. That's fantastic. I would love to come back and be in relationship with you. And so what comes out is that in order to be able to be one with God, right, which is going to be the opposite of the Toeva, it needs to be in line with God's values, which is the value of truth. And the medieval commentator Rashi does a fantastic kind of pivot in our verse. And it's really slight. And I think we could read it and maybe even miss it. Um, no pressure. Volunteers here, Rashi in our verse uh, on Deuteronomy 22.5, in whichever language, please. Yeah, so this is really slight. What Rashi's, the move here that Rashi is making, so this is not me, this is what Rashi is saying, I believe, that the word toeva, uh, an abomination, something that's abhorrent, it's not a judgment that if you do this, it's abhorrent, but rather it's a condition of the prohibition. Meaning, when is it uh, per- forbidden to wear misgendered clothing? When the intention is for a licentious or nefarious purpose. Meaning, we could all understand if a person dresses up as a doctor when they're not a doctor to gain access to patients, that's abhorrent, right? Because you're misrepresenting yourself in order to gain access to a space for something that's inappropriate. But dressing up as a doctor by itself is not inappropriate. You're going to a costume party, you are a doctor, nothing wrong with it. And so what Rashi's saying here is the word key, it doesn't mean because, but rather it means key when. It's an abomination when a person is doing it for a toeva. And the word toeva, abomination, we find in additional spaces. The word toeva is deployed just on owning unfair weights and measures. If a person inherited an old weight for buying and another one for selling and they're different weights so that you can make money on both sides, just owning them is a toeva. So when we talk about a toeva, it has nothing to do with sexual uh, immorality. It has to do with dishonesty. And that fits really well in the framing of seeing the prohibition of wearing misgendered clothing if a person is doing it to deceive the world. It makes sense if a person is saying, listen, I really want access to this gendered space. The only way I can do it is to pretend to be that gender. So then we can understand that that's inappropriate. You can't do that. It's not okay. If a person is saying, no, you don't understand. This is who I am. I'm letting you know who I am. It's actually the intentionality of the verse that's being fulfilled, which is to be honest with the outside world to let them know who you are. So what comes out from this is that the biblical prohibition of this verse is actually very narrow. Wearing misgendered clothing to misrepresent oneself in order to gain access uh, to gendered spaces for something licentious, that is biblically prohibited. And that's why, and, 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 and what's interesting about this is that I think this is how the Code of Jewish Law understood it. Why? Because when he says your only intention is for happiness, it's coming to the exclusion of for something nefarious. So being that you're doing this for happiness, it's no longer biblically forbidden. But what about the rabbis, right? The rabbis also drew lines all over the place. So as a rule, there are three categories that the rabbis did not draw lines when something is biblically permissible. Meaning, if the the Hebrew Bible says it's forbidden, the rabbis don't need to do anything. If the Hebrew Bible says it's forbidden in certain cases, 
the rabbis will say, well, let's just extend that so that nobody comes close. One of the things that we didn't touch on, but it's really interesting, is that in this code of Jewish law that we saw, the second source, the Shulchan Aruch compares the wearing of misgendered clothing on Purim to rabbinically forbidden mixtures. Right? Here, look at it inside again. Um, from the beginning, it is permissible to marry on Purim, that which there's a custom to wear masks on Purim and for women, men to wear women women's clothing and women to wear men's clothing. It's not prohibited because the only intention is for happiness. And so too, to wear garments that contain rabbinically forbidden mixtures. Now this should have bothered us, and it bothered me before, but I forgot to bring it up. Um, the Hebrew Bible says you can't wear wool and linen together. There are different definitions of what does it mean together, right? Like all the things. The rabbis extended that. So even if it's not together, but it's... How can the Code of Jewish Law equate this biblical prohibition with a rabbinic prohibition? It means that the Code of Jewish Law understood that this prohibition of wearing misgendered clothing, when it's done for happiness, is only rabbinic. It's not biblical. And being that here it's on Purim, where there's a mitzvah to be happy, we're now in this space where the rabbis didn't draw lines. So one case is in a case of a mitzvah. If the Hebrew Bible doesn't prohibit it, and the action is a fulfillment of a mitzvah, why would you prohibit that? It's like good things are coming from it. No reason to draw a line. The second category is in a place that it's not shchiach, it's not common. The rabbis drew lines around the majority, like the average experience, right? We're not going to draw lines for like things which are uncommon. We want to like draw fences around things which are common. And the third is tsar, in a place of pain. If the Torah doesn't prohibit it, the rabbis didn't want to be the source of that pain. So, if something is difficult, so then there's a different system of what happens if something is painful, are you allowed to do it, not allowed to do it. But if something is permissible from the Torah's perspective, and uh, not doing something would uh, cause pain, or doing something would cause pain, the rabbis didn't want to draw lines there. So it's known as b'makum tsar, in a place of pain, lo gazrinon. Perhaps the, the easiest example of that is on Shabbos, right? On the Sabbath, there are all sorts of biblical rules, and then there's even more rabbinic. But in a place of pain, the rabbis were like, look, if this is going to cause you pain, don't worry. If it's not biblically forbidden, don't worry about it, right? Um, for example, uh, yeah, you find this also in the way in which the laws of Shabbos, even for human, the laws of Shabbos for humans are the rabbinic ones don't obtain in a place where there's a pain even to an animal. A person has a pet, and the pet's sick and you need to do something that's only rabbinically forbidden in order to alleviate the pain of the animal, you're allowed to. Not only are you allowed to, you're obligated to. Because in a place of pain, even for the pain of animals, right, the rabbis didn't uh, prohibit it. So for a person of trans experience, right, just to kind of review, and then I'm going to share one more text here, and then we can open it up for more conversation, is that not only does this verse not offer a biblical prohibition, right, of, of wearing misgender clothing, clothing for somebody of trans experience, uh, it actually is a fulfillment of the intention of being honest to the universe. It also gives us a new definition of the word toeva. The word toeva is one of misrepresentation, of dishonesty. It is abhorrent to God. It is, it is actually a misrepresentation to God, which of course is absurd because God knows all the things. And so it's considered to be an act of dishonesty that pushes God away, just like God was pushed away in the garden. Um, and it's not coincidental that this is also the word that's used by homosexuality in a verse that involves three different people, right? A man shouldn't be with another man the way he is with a woman. In addition to the way that people, other interpretations, there's certainly something to be said if a person is straight pretending to be gay and if a person is gay pretending to be straight, right? That is dishonest to all those who are involved, right? So there's a consistent use of the word uh, of toeva as a misrepresentation of self.
Additionally, even on a rabbinic level, because it's a fulfillment of a mitzvah, of being happy, right? Trans lives matter, but the lives they live also matter, right? The human dignity component is also just as important. So I want to share one other interesting proof text that, uh, you, that, that um, demonstrates the use of clothing in, in, in expression of identity. So kind of a trick question here, but who was Jacob's, sorry, who was uh, Isaac's oldest son? The firstborn son of Isaac. Asaph. Anybody want to offer another? You're right. Anyone want to offer another right answer? <laughs> Jacob. Jacob. Right? So how, like, this is a little bit complicated because only one came out first. Right? In fact, Yaakov, Jacob's name comes from the word Akev, heel, that he came out second, holding on, grasping the heel. Later, his name gets changed to Yisrael, Israel, and those letters can actually get rearranged to Lirish, that to me, you're the head. And it speaks to the struggle of, of, uh, of Jacob coming from the lowest part of the body to the highest. Uh, it is interesting, by the way, that why are we called B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel? Does anyone know the, the story with the wrestling of the angel? So the verse says that you struggled and that you overcame. So you, you would think, what would be like a good name to take from that episode? The, the successful part, right, that you overcame. In Hebrew, we would be called B'nai Tuchal, right, the one who was successful. But we're not called those who were successful, which called those who struggled, right? Because life is a struggle, and there's holiness in the struggle, and we are the descendants of struggle, and to this day, we continue to struggle. So what's interesting is, Jacob, from the time that he was born, and it sounds like even before he was born, identified as a firstborn, right? He wanted to come out first, because that's who he was. Happens to be, he came out second. But that was, like, coincidental, environmental, it wasn't essential. And his whole life, he's working to try to figure out how to uh, kind of be empowered in that identity. And of course, the day that his grandfather dies, right, which is uh, Abraham, he's there pro providing food for his father Isaac. Uh, it's that day, actually, the Medrash tells us that Esau kills Nimrod, uh, steals from him, uh, and now is really running from, for his life from those soldiers. He sees his brother Jacob and he says, listen, uh, I need some food, right? And the way that the rabbis interpret the verse, but he says, look, you know, what is it to me? I'm going to die. He wasn't thinking in this, you know, deep place of like, what's a birthright? At some point, I'm going to die. What he was saying is like, what difference does it make to me? There are people chasing me. If I don't fuel up, I'm going to die like in a couple of minutes, right? And so he, as a result, he sold the birthright. And so now, whatever that transactional uh, act was, he was now entitled to be able to be out as the firstborn. And so our story here in Genesis 27, 27 is um, on the day that Jacob is finally seen by his father as how he sees himself as a firstborn. And it's a powerful reading, right? So Isaac is old, can't see so well. Uh, he wants to bless the firstborn. Um, and so Esau goes out thinking that he's the firstborn, not being super sensitive to this type of identity uh, and perhaps more concerned about what those blessings might provide for him. And so uh, the verse tells us that Rachel gets uh, garments um, that, he was that she was holding because she was worried, and Asa was also worried that of his many wives, he was worried someone might, someone might walk off with these garments. Uh, and tradition has it that these are actually the garments that God made for Adam and Eve in the garden, which we're going to see here in a second. So Jacob dresses up, right, in these garments, and then goes to get a blessing. Uh, so Genesis 27, 27, do we have a, a volunteer here? 
Anyone else want to read? Yeah, uh, someone, yeah, uh, Miss, did you want to read? Sure. Great, thanks. And he went up and said, so this is uh, Jacob and Isaac. Rebecca was, sorry, I, I said Rachel. I meant Rebecca. Rebecca's his mother, Rachel's his wife. I, I misspoke. I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah. And he smelled his clothes and he blessed him, saying, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. Beautiful. And now the Medrash picks up on this uh, in a way that's a little bit funny. Uh, volunteers for, this, for the last source here. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, you want to read for us? Oh, sure. Great. Surely. No more sense of smell than that of washed goat skin. <laughs> but scripture implicitly tells us that the perfume of the Garden of Eden entered the room. Right? So again, there's this throwback to clothing in the garden as a way of showing the outside world the way in which a person identifies on the inside. And it's a really, I think, powerful, uh, if we could visualize it, right, that, that Jacob his whole life is saying, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm the firstborn. And here at this moment, his father says, oh, you are my firstborn. I see you the way you see yourself. And I think that itself is like a source of tremendous blessing, right? So I want to pause here. Uh, any questions on either the, 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 the learning piece of it in terms of how this flows uh, or any questions uh, on any of this or the truth is anything more broadly? I'm happy to discuss, please. Yeah. It, you don't have to answer this if you don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Uh, being a, an Orthodox rabbi, how did you get into sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got involved publicly uh, because I had a student at Columbia University who uh, transitioned. Uh, thank God he's doing great. But he actually left the West Coast, assigned female and secular, and uh, landed on the East Coast as male and religious, yarmulke, tzitzis, even payas. Uh, changed at the airport. And he carried a tremendous amount of anxiety that nobody knew. He passed. I learned with him for months before he told me. Um, and my synagogue in Harlem was one um, that, that attracted uh, trans folks. Was, um, it, it just did. And um, as a result, um, I was doing work privately for a while. And then one day he was really struggling and a little suicidal. Um, and uh, I just felt that there wasn't a rabbinic voice for this. And like we said earlier, it's so easy to hate things in people that you've never met or experienced. And I saw this young kid, he must have been 19, and he was just, he just, was just being eaten up inside, right, for just wanting to be who he is uh, and not being able to, to just get through life in it. Um, and so that's when I, uh, about three years ago on Hanukkah, gave a speech to my synagogue, um, coming out very publicly as an ally for the trans community. Um, although I was never in opposition, I don't know that I ever would have come to, I, I know that I think I never would have come to this had it not been for the, 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 the folks that I met um, that really just wanted to live, right? Like just wanted to live normal lives, uh, letting the world know that, that the way that the world saw them was not actually who they were. Um, and we have within the Jewish tradition all sorts of examples of things that from the outside might seem contradictory. Friday afternoons, especially in the summer, right? We take in Shabbos early, right? You can make Kiddush from Plaga Mincha, an hour and a quarter halachic hours, but the sun's out. If the sun's out, we're making Kiddush. And we're not bothered. We're not bothered, right? A person sins, the Talmud tells us, then repents out of love. That sin retroactively becomes a merit, right? A person, like now the cheeseburger is a mitzvah, right? A person repents out of love, right? We have shifting in identities all the time. Perhaps the, the best model is that of conversion. Person is a sign Christian. 
person that comes into this world with non-Jewish parents. They say, no, you don't understand. My people are the Jewish people. Our tradition tells us a person converts to Judaism, their soul was by the giving of the Torah. In fact, the Zayr, the early mystical work, says that we don't say the non-Jew who converted. We say the convert who converted. The Gershon is Gayer. Because really, they were always a convert. It took some time, a couple thousand years. But even we talk about a person who's a Balchuva, a person who's like the master of the return, right? A person becomes observant. Their parents weren't observant. Maybe their grandparents weren't observant. The first time they keep Shabbos, we're saying, no, you've come home. What do you mean you've come home? This is the first time you're there. We say, no. A person's natural habitat is one of spirituality. And when a person is sensitive to that identity, so we say, you didn't transition. You came to yourself. You found yourself. You found the truest, truest version of yourself. It's no different for gender. If we think about where gender lies, gender, uh, Shmuley and I did an interview together this morning, so if you want more on where I think gender lies, you can, take, you, you can listen to it there. But, you know, God has gendered attributes, and God doesn't have a body, right? We have a tradition of gender-based spiritual practice. So, you know, if God, if, if, if gender exists in some part on a soul level, it's no different than a person feeling on a soul level Jewish and wanting to, for those who have an awareness of, 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 uh, of spirituality in that space. I don't know what it's like to feel Jewish. I didn't choose to be Jewish. I was born Jewish. I feel in deep relationship with God, but I also don't feel masculine. I don't feel gender. I was, when I was a kid, told which bathroom to use. Made sense to me. When trans kids in particular say, no, you don't understand, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. How do you know? It's not the way that cis people know. We know because society told us. And we're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. There's no tension. It's actually a lack of awareness. Uh, to say it differently, it's, for trans folks, there's an expanded awareness of gender beyond one's body. So the fact that we don't understand it can be very generative. On Purim in particular, we're, trying, we, we're told that we're supposed to drink adalo yada, until we know that we don't know, is one interpretation. It's a really high level to know you don't know. Right, I can tell you, I worked on it. <laughs> I worked on it for a long time. Because the default is, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And we have such confidence. I know what gender is, I'm 40 years old. I've been a man my whole life. I know what it means to be a man. You're not a man, because you look different than I do. Maybe I have no idea what it means to be a man. Where does masculinity land, right? It's so difficult to find good language. Uh, yeah, please, 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 please. That, that's a problem that, that I have, and, 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 and it's, I'd like to say that it's not a judgmental thing, it's just an understanding thing. I have a great deal of difficulty with the, the plural pronouns for singular people sure. as a way of not identifying as either male or female. Yeah. That just kind of makes me a little crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And maybe you can help me. Well, first of all, thank you for being honest and sharing. It's hard because how do you use plural pronouns for a singular person? Like, that's hard. For what it's worth, it's also hard using I or me properly, right? <laughs> like, like, it's just, like, language is difficult, right? Not to minimize it. But, like, it, it, there are things which are awkward and hard. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's incorrect. It just means that it's, it's hard for us. Um, you know, if it makes it any easier, in Genesis 127, God uses plural pronouns for Adam, the individual, 
right? Before the split, right? There's just one person there. And God says, uh, male and female, he created them. But it's before the split, it's just one person. In fact, Rashi there explains this and says, you know, that there, was, there were both people. And, uh, and this is right, the, the story that we were told as kids, right? God puts Adam into some sort of sleep and then separates out female from male. Which means before, they were both there, yeah? Um, in fact, Rashi explains that, so in the mystical tradition, God uh, created this world through speech. The first verse is parsed. Bereshis Barlikim asked that in the beginning, God created the Aleph and the Tuf, the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and so therefore, the name of something represents its essence. And so the Hebrew word for man, Ish, Rashi says, is related to the Hebrew word for Isha, woman, because one came from the other. So Ish and Isha in Hebrew are related because they came together. So God uses the plural pronouns. Um, and so like maybe that can make it a little bit easier. One way to, to maybe think about this uh, is that uh, attri- uh, gender, I think, exists as, as attributes. And we, the truth is we all have all of it, right? There, we're, like, whatever you think is feminine, right? Maybe it's nurturing, it's compassionate, it's mer- like whatever those things are, men have those as well, right? Um, there's a way in which we're more complicated than God. We occupy a physical and finite space. Um, and so there's going to be a dominant expression, right? We can only wear one thing at a time, one outfit, right? But we have another wardrobe that also reflects who we are. My wardrobe is not as expensive as perhaps everybody else's. But um, so God is all of the things, all of the time, in all of the places. The one thing that we know about God is God is one. There's no tension. There's no compartmentalization. Um, you know, for us, memory is different than touch, which is different than smell and taste. And it's just everything's different. Emotions and intellect, everything's and so if we think about gender in that space, for most of us, we just feel as we feel. We have good days, bad days, moments. But there isn't an awareness of, uh, of gender as a thing. We just are. For folks of trans experience, there's an awareness of gender as something beyond their own. Now, just like a person who was assigned male can fe- feel female and somebody who was assigned female can feel male, there's some folks who don't fit into that binary either because they feel they identify no, n- neither as male or female, or male and female, or depending on the moment, right, there's, there's a different awareness of. I can't speak to any of that experience because I don't feel it. But I think it's important to believe people when they, right? And so um, whatever that is, I don't need to be able to understand it to be able to know and understand that it's important to them. Right? There's certain people who, who their parents named them something and they hate the name, right? Or like, you know, their name is Becca, but if you say Rebecca, they'll like lose it, right? Or vice versa, right? I have an article, I have a book, Textual Activism. In there, I have an article on what the Torah uh, says and the Talmud says about calling trans folks by their names. And we, we find this. I mean, in, 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 in Genesis, uh, God changes Abraham's name and changes Sarah's name. And God says that it's, it's a biblical prohibition to call Abraham by his original name. Like, there's a biblical prohibition, right? I, so I have, an, I have an article about it. Meaning, God is telling us that, like, names are actually really important. And when a person, uh, a name reflects where a person is and who they are. And so there's something deeply violent the theory tells us, in, in using you know, a dead name. Because that's no longer, just like you can't, there's a lot of sensitivity uh, around names uh, in general within the Jewish tradition. And just to reflect, one of the questions that I get often from parents of kids who are transitioning 
uh, is the name that uh, was given to the child very often after a dear loved one who's passed away. And now the, the child wants another name. And the parents call and they want to be supportive. But this name, it was my father, it was my mother, it was my, right? Like, I, I, I can't lose that. It's, it, that's real. That's very real. And the struggles of the children and the struggles of, of parents are, are often different struggles and often very personal in that, you know, for some parents, when a kid transitions, they feel like they lost their son or daughter and there's this other person. For others, you know, they don't mourn the 10-year-old when the kid becomes 11. It's just, it's just, it's, it's an evolution. There's no right or wrong way to do that. Um, and just like we can create space and honor the way in which a person is feeling about that, we should also be able to honor the way in which pronouns are important to people. I understand yeah. that. Yeah. But I understand an intellectual. Yeah. Practice makes it better. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no judgment. Like, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I, I work in a super queer space. I'm straight. I'm cis. All this stuff's awkward because it's not my lived experience. Um, and it's hard. And it's hard. It's super hard. It's super hard. So, like, you know, is, it's, we, have some, we had somebody who has since gone back to school, to graduate school. They were genderqueer. They transitioned from, they had an identity as a lesbian. Um, and then they also uh, came out as uh, genderqueer. They used they, them. And it was really, because I knew them as her, as she, it wasn't intentional. Like, it would slip, and then I would feel horrible. And then they would say, like, no, it's okay. And I'm like, no, it's like, uh, uh, you know, like, and it's good people with good intentions are also still human. And so, like, it's hard, and that's normal. And practice makes it easier, at least. Yeah, uh, yeah, here, here, and then here, yeah. I just wanted to follow up just that one, one word you said when you said yeah. the word queer. Yeah. I've heard the word a lot. I'm not sure what's Sure, sure, sure. Great. Happy to clarify. Um, it's an umbrella term that has been reclaimed. It used to be a pejorative, the way in which, like, dyke used to be pejorative, and now there's dyke marches, and it's been reclaimed, so it's not offensive. Uh, in queer circles, it's not offensive. Um, I was in England talking, uh, like, the word queer is literally in my job title, and I introduced myself, and there was this old guy who was gay with this very heavy English accent, and he was like, I'm not queer, I'm a homosexual, right? So some of this stuff is generational. Um, but queer is like an umbrella term which is now being um, appropriated uh, for gender, and it means like a, a deviation from, let's say, the, the binary from the norm. So now there's the queering of, there's queer mikvah, there's queer Talmud, right? It's now becoming, right, like a bending of, a... a, uh, a queer is anybody who's a lesbian or Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like an umbrella category. So queer by itself is somebody who's not straight. So it's like all the things. Gender queer is some sort of blending, blurring of gender that's not cis. So it's an umbrella term um, for, right? And these things, you know, every few years they shift, right? But that's, that's where it's holding. Yeah, sir. So I have two-part question. I, uh, so this clothing issue, is that the bulk of the argument of the opposition? That's the first line. That's the first thing. Because it's, so one of the things that's interesting about being trans as opposed to being queer is that there isn't really an action item for being, right? Like, what's your action item as a male? What's your action item as a female, right? You, you just are. Being queer often involves, like, another person, right? So, right, I mean, gay identity, a person can be gay, free from it. Um, but it, it, it's almost predicated on an attraction to another, right? As opposed to identity, which is just very independent. So the, a person can have a, a queer identity, and that's real. But in terms of trans, in terms of, like, the Torah's prohibition, um, it's hard to come up with, like, so what's wrong with being trans? 
Yeah, good, fantastic. And so because there's nothing wrong with it, this verse is what's often thrown out, that like as soon as they transition, they're going to be right uh, in, this, in this prohibition. This is the verse that, that's used uh, in opposition. There are other things which are more specific, like there's a prohibition uh, of like self-mutilation uh, for men. Um, and, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, Rabbi, like, I want to get the surgery, like, what do you think? So the first thing I say is, look, I don't like getting flu shots, and I'm not a doctor, and like you, and I can refer you, I've written in my book, I have an article with the head of the transgender clinic at Mount Sinai, who's done a lot of work, and, and we uh, wrote something on the rabbinic, uh, on the prescription, uh, the rabbinic prescription, no, I don't remember what it was titled, but something about the, uh, the rabbinic prescription for trans health. Um, but as a rule, like, uh, Judaism sees surgery as something not to do unless it's necessary. And so when the kid says, but Rabbi, you don't understand, I can't live like this, so then my response is always, you certainly don't have to die over it, right? Um, so if a person feels like I'm not living my life as this, right, so even though you have biblical prohibitions in the mix, um, it is person-specific, but if a person is in that place where they, they you know, so the mainstream science-based medicine now is saying that the way in which we, the best response uh, to uh, those who feel uh, who are experiencing gender dysphoria and uh, is to transition and to um, to allow for an alignment uh, of the identity with the body to the extent that 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 feels right for the person. Um, I wrote it at, for Brandeis uh, University. It's not hard to find, uh, but it's a, it's a good article, and it's actually based on a verse uh, in this past week's parsha. Uh, it says um, right that 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 if a person has to pay for damages because a person uh, is meant to get healed. And so we don't have opposition when a person, God forbid, is born like with a heart defect. We don't say, well, if God didn't want you to have a hole in your heart, you wouldn't have a hole in your heart, right? Right? Or deviated septum or all these things, right? We're told to, right, invest in being healthy. So for trans folks, that's what, you know, I don't push surgery because I'm a doctor and I, again, can't even handle a flu shot. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's the main thing. And then the other questions become in orthodoxy around gendered spaces, uh, a man of trans experience getting an aliyah can be counted in a minion. But those are like secondary, like the consequences of. And they're also like the work is very similar in that I also just want to name that orthodoxy for a lot of reasons is offensive to folks. I know that some people see gender segregation as just a form of oppression. Um, my God is not a misogynist, right? And I see the patriarchy as a curse, a result of the original sin. There wasn't a gender differential in the garden before that. Um, I have an article on that as well. Uh, I don't have a lot of friends, so I, <laughs> I write a lot. I don't know which came first, not having a lot of friends and being free to write or just writing all the time, and therefore I don't have time for friends. Uh, but I do have an article on, uh, actually last year I wrote, uh, it's called something like Purim, the Patriarchy and a Path Forward. Um, it's also, I think it's, a, it, it's, it's one of the more fun articles. Um, so there are other things. So a man of trans experience uh, getting an aliyah, for example, uh, within Jewish law, uh, the Code of Jewish Law tells us that a woman can uh, get an aliyah. She can get called up to the Torah. Um, it's just a function of Kavrat Sibor. That 500 years ago, it was deemed socially inappropriate. It was a poor reflection on a community. Perhaps if they couldn't get a man to make the blessing, you need to get a woman to do it. Today, there are those who argue that it's the biggest covet. It's the biggest honor to have women have an aliyah, right? So I think reasonable people can see that on both sides. Um, but the point is that even from, but, but even according to people who don't have a tradition of women having an aliyah, they understand that really they're allowed to. It's just a social construction of not. So if you have a person who transitions from female to male, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to get an aliyah because they, it's, 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 it's not perceived as a woman from society and from the letter of the law, it's permissible. Yeah. 
And that could be, sorry, we got other hands up. So, yeah, so uh, here and then, I don't know, yeah, it was whatever the order was. Uh, yeah, you're next, yeah. Goes to something you just said. So if the, just to comment on, if we're not supposed to damage our body, mm -hmm. harm our body, it's supposed to stay intact for. Yeah. How do you address then the fact if you want a surgical transition? Right. So I would say that for, for people, well, like, what does me, being healthy mean? What does it look like? Not physically, but like what. How does Judaism see uh, being healthy? So it's not just physical, it's also mental, and it's also, it's in all the different, like, psychological, uh, in all of the different ways. So, you know, it's brought down, in code, like, for example, in the Code of Jewish Law, it's brought down that men aren't supposed to dye their hair. Because, like, it's something that women do. But if a person is, like, so preoccupied that perhaps they grade early, or, like, they can't go out of the house because they feel like, right, or they're worried about they can't get a job because they look old, right, those things, right? Uh, ageism is also something that the, 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 the rabbi saw was bad. So then like, there's a dispensation, and that's based on how does a person feel. So I would say that nobody wants to get cut if they're healthy unnecessarily. So if a person wants it, it's because they, they see it to be necessary. And, the, and we defer to mental health experts and to people who think about these things uh, all the time and, and are educated in it. And thank God, Mount Sinai in particular has a wonderful transgender clinic where they vertically integrate you know, the family dynamics and mental health and uh, follow-up and prep and, you know, um, it's, it's not simple. I mean, uh, yeah, but I would say that, you know, if a person, you know, if a, if a person would ever want anything to be changed on their body because it would make them feel better about the way they see themselves, um, Jewish law already has a lot written about cosmetic surgeries. Yeah. Um, and this is, uh, this is not just about, you know, some sort of augmentation to you know, feel better about oneself uh, in, in, in that kind of way. This is much more uh, on a deeper level. Yeah, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Great. Was there a hand here before? Okay, good. Um, so there are a lot of uh, texts out there, and within uh, the texts there are a lot of verses. I'm curious to know what was the process in selecting these particular verses, and on top of that, I'm wondering if um, there were more verses that you had and then you decided not to include those, and what was the reason you chose not to include those? Yeah, um, in thinking about the opposition to uh, trans-inclusivity, this happens to be the verse that comes up the most. This is the verse that the, the RCA, the Rhythmical Council of America, said, look, like, you know, how, do you, how do you answer this? Um, you know, even the, the Ramah here uh, acknowledges that there are those who disagree with him and the custom right, in the Shulchan Aruch, but he, and it's helpful because he says, listen, I know there's opposition, and uh, still, I'm right. Um, so I, I chose that one, I mean, he's saying about himself, right? So I, code the, I chose the Code of Jewish Law because it is the most authoritative in terms of, right, it is literally the code. Um, and the rest, I, I just kind of, those were the two sources that I started with, and then the rest is, I think, because it's super interesting um, to see the role of, of clothing more broadly and how it really comes to support the intention of somebody uh, of trans experience wearing gender-affirming clothing. Um, in terms of other intersections, um, I think there are really complicated things that we don't have answers to. For example, I don't, right? Let's say you have um, a woman of trans experience, so assigned male, transitions, uh, did not have bottom surgery and is not circumcised and now wants to convert to Judaism, right? So do we say that that's body part specific, right? You cannot convert if you have an uncircumcised penis or is it that, no, men need to be circumcised and this is a woman, 
right? It's the same thing for a woman uh, who transitioned male to female, uh, uh, sorry, from female to male, um, and gives birth, right? So is that an affront to matrilineal descent because you have a man giving birth? So is it uterus-specific, right? Or is it gender-specific, right? So those are like different source sheets, right? Uh, and like, you know, uh, these are things that are, are not hypothetical questions. And it's super complicated, and the stakes are really high. And some people care what I think, but the whole world doesn't care, right? Not everybody in the world cares what I think. Um, and so the work, I think, that is most uh, successful and productive is to really kind of change the, the dominant culture, right? There's a famous saying where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way, right? If the rabbis want to do something, the math isn't the hard part, right? Like you said, there's a lot of texts, there's a lot of verses, it's a very big tayro. Um, and so it really does boil down to, like, do we want queer folks to stay in orthodox places, or do we want to purge orthodox places of queer folks? If we want to acknowledge the queer reality, and like they're, they're gay, we, you know, we joke there's one in every minion, right? It's about 10%. <laughs> so what's then the intelligent response to somebody who's gay, right? So, yeah, it's eight to 10%, but yeah. Within the trans experience, it's less than, no, no, in the universe, like about 10% of the world. Yeah, and there, <laughs> right, and Iran is free from them, right? They, they skew in progressive places, right? Yeah, so we got a, more than our fair share. But, um, but yeah, it's about, one in, it's about one in 10. And of course, like, the, the numbers are a little bit hard to know definitively because not every, right, all the things, but it's approximately 10%. Um, for, for trans folks, um, and it could be that trans folks are gonna, are gonna be defined for like, people who aren't cis, right? So any version of, it's about half of 1%. Right, so uh, one out of every 200, right, half of 1%, which just in our military is around 15,000 folks, right? So if you think, uh, there's like, let's say there's 300, we'll round down to about 300 million folks in America, it's about one and a half million trans or gender queer folks in America, right? So it's not insignificant, it's a half of 1%. Um, so w one of the things that's interesting in a, uh, as a result of, of really something very tragic is the recent need to put out numbers of what is pikuach nefesh, right? And it came out around, um, you know, vaccines. There was outbreaks of, and there are people, right, who uh, probably because they never took a science class, uh, right, think what they think and all the things. So the question became, um, what, according to science, is the number that we can then kind of um, force a kid to get a vaccine, right? Like, if there's a real need and it's life-threatening, at what point does society need to intervene to protect somebody? So anyways, the, the number of one in 1,000 became the number that, that if, if the doctor says there's a one in 1,000 chance that uh, a person won't live with or without something, so then that's already called pikuach nefesh, right? Which is, if you think about it, it's, 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 it's actually like, it's a real, like if one in 1,000, right? The, the, the suicide rate, the attempted suicide rate within the trans community is almost one in two. It's 41%, yeah? The average life expectancy of a trans woman of color in this country is 35 years old, right? 35 years old is how long a, uh, a, a woman of color who's trans can expect to live in this country. Of violence, murder. murder in particular, yeah. Uh, mainly murder, but also suicide. The, the rate of suicide, of attempted suicide in, in the trans community, 
uh, for people who are not supported in their families is uh, about one is about 50 percent. Nearly half of all trans folks, if they're rejected by their families, uh, attempt suicide. That number goes down to the national average when they're supported. Well, so I think like two murders last week. here, no, oh, in the country, yeah. Every year, so there are two dates on the calendar uh, that that are mark uh, days for the trans community. One is Trans Day of Remembrance, uh, which is November twentieth. We um, had we CBSC had an initiative. Um, we created yard site candles with a Jewish star with a trans flag, and we sent them to Jewish communities to light um, on Trans Day of Remembrance uh, to remember just the people that were murdered that year, right? Uh, due to transphobic uh, violence is the, is the language we use, transphobic violence. Um, yeah, and one is too many, obviously. Um, and then March 31st is Trans Day of Visibility, which is more of a celebratory day. Um, we're having a, we did for Hanukkah, we made a, uh, a 3D printed uh, trans uh, mezuzah cover that has the trans flag um, to bring more visibility and awareness. And then this year we're having, there's an Israeli, um, artist uh, named Emmanuel. He does a lot of like Kiddush cups and Jewish uh, Judaica stuff. Anyways, he's making a Kiddush cup for us uh, with the trans flag that we're going to have available uh, to bring more visibility to sacred spaces around uh, trans identity and the, and the trans needs. Yeah, please, Rabbi. Um, it seems to me the LGBT issue has been more successful than any other issue over the last decade Yeah. And I wonder if you agree with that. If you do, why you think that is? Over yeah. You know, combating racism, yeah. Poverty, and secondly, mom, five years ago, nobody knew anything about trans stuff. Yep. It was still like terrible jokes, no awareness. And, and in my experience, it's it, maybe even three years. Yep. It has like the awareness has shifted so radically. And I wonder what triggered that. Yeah. Those are great questions. So the first one is, I think you're right. There's been much more progress uh, over LGBT issues and certainly than racial equality in the last 50 years. Um, the, the, the predominant thought in academic circles um, is that um, the personal makes the difference and a person is able to get to know somebody and like them and respect them before they know that they're queer or gay, a queer or trans. Whereas as soon as a person sees somebody of color, you bring that prejudice to them as soon as you meet them, and there's often distance. Like, oh, you're not my type, or whatever that is. And as a result, you don't get to know people, and as a result, you don't get to break down those prejudices. Um, the other thing is that because the trans piece uh, and the LGBT piece hasn't really been on the radar, there haven't been systems of oppression the way there's been systems of oppression for people of color, right? Jim Crow and the new Jim Crow, and the, the, um, the, social, the um, prison, prison system and all of that stuff, voter suppression, all of that is historically conscious uh, oppression of people of color. Um, and because like, trans folks weren't on the radar, you didn't have those systems that you had to deconstruct. right? So there was a different baseline, and there are easier ways of advancing the cause. Um, the other question, uh, I think, is in part, honestly, uh, first of all, I, I think you're right, right? If, we, if five, three years ago, you know, you would have come up with the top five, right? Gun violence, the environment, maybe immigration. Um, I mean, look, there's no shortage of things which are broken. Thank you so much. Yeah, please, <laughs> thank you. Um, we should have a tip jar. <laughs> Last call, though, yeah? Um, 
so because this administration has been so aggressive in a trans ban in the military, in erasing uh, trans folks by definition, uh, in healthcare, right? Uh, in trying to give more power to religious organizations to discriminate against LGBT and trans, uh, and trans folks in particular. Um, I think it's been elevated because of the opposition. And as a result, there's a lot more awareness. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, and we've gotten to a place where, you know, Hollywood and other places that give tremendous visibility has very slowly uh, recognized that, that within their community there's just a huge trans and LGBT population that finally has been able to get a voice, right? Um, so you have people um, that have transitioned within places uh, of recognition, actresses, even some politicians, um, and that's an amazing thing. Um, it, this absolutely skews uh, generationally. Uh, I was speaking somewhere, uh, I don't remember, and um, I asked, you know, raise your hand if you know somebody personally of trans experience. And the people who raised their hands, right, you could tell all of the young people knew somebody, right, people, middle-aged people knew, like some of them did, and then older people really didn't. And uh, what was really funny is that there was this older man who I think asked the question, and he said, look, I don't know anybody. And the woman sitting next to him says, well, you do now, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And so part of that is, right, being able to recognize that the struggles of different generations vary. Um, and there's just something that's happening now. Again, if, if, if gender is really a function of, of some sort of soul level, I, I think we're just existing in a time where different attributes of God are, are coming down in different ways, and I don't really understand it, but I think, yeah, it's hard to account for it. Yeah, please. So what I understand you're really saying is it was always there, it was always there in the same percentage it is now, but since it wasn't acceptable 30 years ago, people didn't come out. Today it's acceptable, and it's normal. I mean, my, my grandchildren go to a school that's very, very progressive, and they promote diversity, mm -hmm. and they they have a specific day of the year where they have, um, I don't even know what it's called, but it's, it's like they ask all trans children, all trans parents, and all trans teachers to stand up in front of the whole school and be proud of what they are. Which yeah. is shocking to me, not because yeah. I'm um, a prude, but I'm, yeah. I'm just not used to yeah, it's hard to know. Like these are great questions. Like this always exists, and now we're just recognizing that. Uh, does recognizing it, it itself um, give awareness to people who perhaps could have lived their whole life and not known? I think all those things are true. I mean, I, I know people who uh, were in their late twenties before they met somebody who was gay, and then they were like, "Oh, that's that's me," and never struggled with it before. I mean, this is a little bit dated, but one rabbi. Uh, who died in the 80s, compared it uh, to like smoking cigarettes and that nobody walks by a tobacco plant and says, oh, you know what we should do? We should pick this, dry this, grind this, and smoke this, right? Like, that's not a thought process. But once a person smokes a cigarette, a person can say, like, oh, I like this, right? So I think sexuality is a spectrum in that there's certain people who are like really hardwired to be straight, really hardwired to be gay. There are people who are bi, and there are people who skew, Right, 90% of the people they're attracted to are from one, but there's like 10% they could. So I think that being exposed, exposed, right, whatever that means, 
can shift it from one place to another, but it doesn't shift it from one extreme to the other. So I think all of those things contribute. It's really hard to know, but it's not contagious. It's not in the water, and you know you can't pray it away. Yeah, and then and then maybe if there's one more question, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah. So a comment and a question. Sure. I don't think trans is new. There are a lot of ancient cultures, like South um, South Pacific, where they identified three genders, and they actually promoted three yeah. different genders. And my question is, has your work moved the Orthodox community at all? I hope so. I mean, I can't take credit for like the world being different now than three years ago. Um, but part of that, I, you know, no, I don't mean like I take credit, but I, I've published now about 80 articles. Um, I speak, you know, wherever I can, as often as I can. And he's a humble man. <laughs> he's, he's not always the Different lane, yeah. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it is personal, and I feel called to this. Um, and um, but yeah, it's absolutely changed, and it's changed because. Um, people feel like they can tell their stories. Um, and one of the things that's, that's really interesting within the Orthodox world is that, and, and um, in the yeshiva world, is that it's a top-down theocracy, right? And so they're really just a few people that if they would say, listen, we have new access to information, new responses, it would change broadly uh, in communities overnight. Um, and there are people who, right, there's a very famous, world-famous rabbi his daughter called me because she wanted a shidduch for another woman. And she said, do you know any Orthodox lesbians? All of the ones that I know are married to men. And so part of this is that uh, when the world was a less safe space to be out, people suffered in silence. And now people have choices. And so people have either left Orthodoxy or stayed in Orthodoxy and not been faithful. And HIV is up in the Orthodox world in the straight community because not everyone there is straight, and not everyone there is faithful. Um, and these questions come to rabbis. And so when it's just one question, the person says, okay, so you had this person in our community who, it's a sad story. But uh, once you start hearing about this every single day, right, and I hear about this every single day, you realize that like, we're, we're, like, we're actually failing, like the system's broken. And particularly around um, trans kids, because the stakes are so high, and it's so easy to see the purity of children who have a deep awareness of gender identity and no awareness of sexual orientation. That I think the first time a rabbi, and I know these rabbis, got the call, like my daughter tells me that he's a boy trapped in a girl's body. Um, you can be dismissive of it. But after like the second or third hundredth call, right? Then you're like, oh, there's, there's, like, there's a thing here. Like this is a thing. And so even now, the very big ultra-Orthodox rabbis, right, who are twice my age um, and know a lot more Torah, uh, they're telling parents, use gender-affirming pronouns, use gender-affirming clothing. Um, and so that's changing. And, you know, even in ultra-Orthodox spaces, um, principals are not throwing out kids who have two mommies or two tatis, two fathers. 
And so what that means is that everybody in that class knows somebody who has two mommies. And they're their friend. They go to the birthday party. That class isn't homophobic because they have a friend who has two mommies. And within a generation, it's no longer a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I wonder if that's yep. normal. Yes. And if so, is that because of our proclivity towards transition or conversion, so to speak? Or it's something else going on? No, 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 it's a great question. And yes, there's, um, there's an overwhelming, uh, there's a disproportionate percentage of people who, who want to convert to Judaism who are of trans experience. I think it comes down to an awareness of identity. Um, I think it comes to a sensitivity of, uh, of self and awareness. I, I mean, it's not fair for me because all the people who call me essentially are trans or queer, right? And a percentage of them want to convert, um, right? So I'm not a good data point on that. But um, even in, uh, in other places, people tell me that that's their experience. Um, I think these things are complicated. Whenever we talk about the soul, like we can offer up observations, but like... But I think, I, think the, I think they're not uh, unconnected. One of the things that's also interesting is that there's a higher rate of, of, of trans folks in, in, in the autistic community. For, for people who have Asperger's for whatever reason, have a higher, and one of the thoughts is that they just, they don't have the inhibition, right? They're so, they don't filter. And so they're able to kind of convey without those pressures. Um, there's some interesting research coming out of Canada on that. The other thing that's interesting, um, just about the biological piece, so Dr. Safer out of, out of uh, Mount Sinai, uh, he did a, if you're interested on this, the, the video is not great uh, in terms of all the things, but Katie Kirk uh, did a, a documentary called uh, Gender Revolution with National Geographic and Dr. Safer's in it. Um, and he says that statistically within twins, if, um, if they're identical twins and one is trans, there's a 40% chance the other person will also be trans. If they're not identical twins and one is trans, the second one has the same national average of half of 1%, which speaks to it of being on some sort of biological level. There's also really interesting studies from the 70s and 80s. People were trying to find the gay gene, right? Or like they were looking in, in brains uh, after people passed away to see, you know, is there something you can identify on being gay? And so even though the clientele were all uh, you know, all male or all female, uh, there were folks there that were trans. And there's some interesting studies there about the mapping of the brain of somebody of trans experience aligns with the gender that they identify with as opposed to the way in which they were assigned, which speaks to some sort of interface between the biological piece, the genetic piece, the DNA piece, the soul piece. And it's really okay to say we don't know. Yeah. Thank you all so much for being part of this. and. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education 
in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.